on the 27th of March 1977, two fully boarded and fully fueled Boeing 707s collided on the runway at Tenerife Airport. The impact and the resulting fire killed 583 people aboard the two aircraft. It was and it remains to this day the deadliest accident in aviation history. The most disastrous and destructive event in King David's life was undoubtedly the night he met Bathsheba. But that attempted takeoff at Tenerife Airport and that night of passion in Jerusalem had much more in common than the devastating consequences, which was the outcome in each case, as we'll see. And if you don't know the story of David and Bathsheba, it is a sordid and sleazy tale involving voyeurism, perhaps rape, certainly adultery, deception, drunkenness, conspiracy, premeditated murder, lies, humiliating exposure, and public disgrace. And apart from that little list, you've got to say that David comes out of this story really well. <laughs> now, David is now about midway through his 40-year reign, and he meets Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read that in a minute, but before I do, let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would hear from you this morning through your word. We want to be attentive, open our ears, Lord, and open our hearts to receive what you want to say, and open our hearts to obey it, and give you glory, and maximize our joy by doing your will. Amen. It says this, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. And so David, looking to cover his tracks, orders Uriah, her husband, to return home from the war. And David then tries three times to get him to sleep with his wife while he's on leave to erase any suspicion about the paternity of this child that she's carrying. But each time David tries to do this, Bathsheba, uh, sorry, Uriah refuses. And even having been plied with alcohol by David, he still refuses. He says it would be so dishonorable to enjoy some home comforts with Bathsheba 
while his brothers in arms are out on the front risking their lives for the Lord on the battlefield. And so David gives an instruction at that point to Joab, the commander, to deploy Uriah on the front line and then leave him perilously exposed so he's sure to get killed, which is what happened. And then the report comes back, verse 23. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Some months later, moving into chapter 12 now, the prophet Nathan pays David a visit. And he tells David a little story, a little parable. David's thinking, oh great, good old Nathan, I'd like to hear it from a prophet now and again. He tells him this story about two men. One is rich and one is poor. The rich man, owning large numbers of sheep and cattle of his own, callously seizes the poor man's one solitary little ewe lamb that he loves so much. And he takes this lamb from this poor man to serve up to his guests at his dinner party. David hears this story and he burns with anger. Because he knows, you know, from his, from his shepherd days, how, how attached you can get to these little animals. A little lamb that you've looked after from birth. And David says, what? As surely as the Lord lives, this man must die. And Nathan says, it's you. You did it. You killed your servant's wife. So you stole your servant's wife. And then you killed Uriah, her husband. You couldn't hide it from God. And soon the whole kingdom is going to know about it. And immediately on being challenged with these words, David completely melts. There's no bluffing, there's no excuses, there's no self-defense at all. He just hangs his head right there and then and admits it. He says, yeah, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned. And from this moment comes Psalms 32 and Psalm 51. These are songs of deep repentance and sorrow for sin. And they're songs of forgiveness and new hope. And that is the story of David and Bathsheba. We've been marveling, haven't we, for about two months now about this amazing man of God, David. What a man of faith he is. His heart for God like nobody else. His amazing defeat of the mocking, godless, giant Goliath. We've read about his passionate worship for the Lord, his love of integrity wherever he went. We've heard about his zeal for God's honour. And now this. Dereliction of duty. Uh, lust out of control, infidelity, hypocrisy, treachery, assassination, scandal, and cover-up. And seemingly, for David, until David, until Nathan meets him, no shame, no crisis of conscience, no sense of guilt, no trace of remorse, and no repentance at all at first. Can this really be the same man we've been reading about up to now? And of course, we know 
but it can be and it is. At 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5, it says this. It sums up David's entire reign in one sentence. David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life. Except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. It's the one blot in his copybook. It's an uncharacteristic moment of madness which leads to an uncharacteristic season of sinfulness. David really does have a heart for God. He does. But every human heart, even a heart for God like David, every human heart is capable, without exception, of great darkness and great wickedness. See, every one of us has got a battle going on in our hearts. Um, and the battle is between our new uh, born-again identity on the one hand, scrapping it out with the old sinful nature that used to rule the roost. And the gloves are off. It's absolute carnage in every human heart, Christian human heart. Jeremiah 17 says this, The heart, even of a godly man like David, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And maybe some of you are thinking, yeah, but is it all 100% David's fault? I mean, to what extent does Bathsheba share some of the guilt in this story? What do you think? Could she possibly bathe more discreetly, away from prying eyes? Maybe. Is she maybe open to an opportunity for a bit of a fling with her husband away a long time? Could she scream and protest when she realises David is taking her into his chamber? Could she, like Joseph did in, um, in Genesis with Potiphar's wife, just run away? Could she have done that? Or are maybe the power dynamics of this encounter just too weighted against her? You know, she is, after all, summoned into the presence of one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. Everyone's singing about David, this guy who slays his tens of thousands of men with a sword. It's a frightening guy, David. It's an intimidating experience for her, to say the least. And I think when you look at this story closely, and I think it swings decisively towards being 100% on David, the guilt of this. Now, just digging into the story a little bit, water was scarce in Jerusalem. It always has been. It was even more scarce at this time. There was, at that time, uh, no natural source within the city walls itself. A few hundred years later, under Hezekiah, they brought water into the city. But at that time, they had to get it from outside the city. So women would typically have bathed once monthly only at the end of the menstrual cycle. That's when they would have washed. And that would render them ritually pure and able to enter the tabernacle or the temple. And so Bathsheba's bathing, far from being a, a brazen exhibition in front of men's eyes, it was probably an expression of her devotion to God and her observance of the law of Moses. And most likely, her courtyard was overlooked by only one building in the entire city, the tallest of the lot, David's palace. 
And Bathsheba had every reason to believe that the king would be on the battlefield anyway, alongside her husband, where he should have been. And it says in verse 4, chapter 11, David sent messengers to get her. To get her. Not to invite her. Not to request the pleasure of her company. David doesn't so much meet her as take her. And when Nathan confronts David in chapter 12, there's no suggestion in Nathan's words that Bathsheba was complicit in any way. He said, you are the man, David. You despised the word of the Lord. You took Uriah's wife. You killed him with the sword. You did it in secret, he said. Guilty on all five counts. It's you, David. You are responsible. And David never replies to Nathan, well, well, we had an affair. Or we just had a moment of madness together. Uh, still less, well, to be honest, she was asking for it, bathing in front of me like that. He, he just melts and yeah, he accepts full responsibility. Yes, I did it. I have sinned, he says. Right, now remember that plane crash I mentioned earlier? I said there was more in common than just the devastating consequences and the results. When the investigation into this plane crash was completed, they found that there were, in fact, many um, factors that contributed to the accident, including pilot error, communications difficulties, a sudden descent of thick fog right over the runway, and a bomb threat at a neighbouring airport in Gran Canaria, leading to air traffic congestion and confusion. All those factors together created a perfect storm of risk. But the report found that there was only one fundamental cause of this accident. One of the pilots attempted takeoff without permission to do so from the tower. Okay, there was bad static on the radio. Okay, there was a misunderstanding, linguistic misunderstanding over non-standard vocabulary. Okay, the fog reduced visibility to 100 meters. Okay, there were planes that wouldn't have been there in that airport on the approach to the runway had they not been rerouted by a bomb threat. But if that pilot had not attempted takeoff and initiated uh, running down the runway, none of the other factors would have caused that accident. And here you can say, well, there are many contributing factors to why this all goes wrong for David that lead to his downfall. His not being away at war when he should have been, as would normally be the case in the springtime. Bathsheba's bathing just happening to be visible from the palace roof. Her husband just happening to be away from home at the time. David just happening to be on the roof at the moment she was bathing. But a single fundamental cause is identical to that of the plane crash. One man taking a course of action without permission. Without permission from God. And whenever we sin, Whenever we sin, however many excuses we make, and however many honestly mitigating circumstances we can find, 
the end of the day, it's on us. And we need to get right with God when we sin, because it's on us. So how did this one man, David, whose heart was so good, go so badly wrong? When you read the story, it looks like it all starts with David noticing Bathsheba and taking a second look. But in fact, David's first mistake comes about 20 years earlier, as his reign is just beginning. See, David knows he knows the word of God. He knows Deuteronomy 17, and he knows it says this. Deuteronomy 17. When you enter the land the Lord your God gives you, is giving you, and you've taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Not like Saul, more like David. So far, so good. But a few verses later, it says this, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. But David skips over that bit. Instead, he acts like one of the pagan, idolatrous kings of the nations that surround Israel at the time. And by the time David is crowned king, he's already got three wives. Three! Before long, he's got four more, bringing the grand total to seven. By the time he captures Jerusalem, there are still others, unspecified number, plus concubines. At the coronation of our king, King Charles III, um, this month, uh, he was given several gifts and emblems for his reign. But the first gift he was given, and the most important, in my view, of them all, was a Bible, which was presented to him with these words. Sir, to keep you, listen to this, ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes receive this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. Well, I hope he reads it daily, and I hope he treasures it to his heart, as his mother certainly did. David did usually. But he skimmed over the bits he didn't like all that much. And these were the tragic consequences we've been reading about today. So I know people who uh, must have heard thousands of sermons, really good ones, people in good churches, who over years and years have heard the gospel time and time again, but who remain unmoved and unchanged by the power of the gospel. Are you letting God's word set the agenda? In your life. Let it set the agenda. The evangelist to the Alka Indians in Ecuador, Elizabeth Elliot, used to say that the word of God, she said, I see as a straight edge which shows up all our own crookedness. And she said, we cannot really tell how crooked our thinking is until we line it up with the straight edge of scripture. And it seems paradoxical, but for, for all David's genuine love for the Lord, he never really restrains his desire for women and brings it under control. 
The next thing David does is be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that is his fault. No one else's. It's his fault. He allows himself to become comfortable. And I'd say success does that for us more than struggle. It's one of the reasons why God allows struggle in our lives. This is the springtime. It says that in chapter 11, verse 1. It's, that's the moment for him to get going and lead his army to finish the job of subduing a, a, a vicious enemy, the Ammonites. But David likes the creature comforts of his palace a bit too much. And there's a time when there's a place for rest and replenishment. And burnout does not honour God. Make sure you get rest. But this is time for work for David. And David has become slack. He sends other people off to serve the Lord on the battlefield, do his job while he's putting his feet up for a life of leisure. And there he is, David, is walking back and forth on the roof of his palace. Literally and figuratively going nowhere. David's a bit like Homer Simpson in the cartoon who says this, I love this quote. It's not easy, I can't do the voice, it's not easy to juggle a pregnant wife and a troubled child, but somehow I managed to fit in eight hours of TV a day. <laughs> That's David right there, bored, because he's not where God wants him to be. And he's not where, at the cutting edge of where the action is. And when you're not doing what you know God has called you to do, there's so much time for the devil to mess with your head. So are you in life? Are you where God wants you to be sure of that? Are you doing what he wants you to do? Or have you taken your foot off the gas lately? Have you started to waste your life a bit, not doing what God has got for you. Thirdly, David, walking on his roof, thinks he is the master of all he surveys. He's a bit like Simba in The Lion King. He looks over this whole kingdom and he says, everything the light touches is mine. Remember that scene in The Lion King? And then for David, the mellow evening light falls on this beautiful woman, undressed and unaware. And he notices her. How can he not? She still hasn't noticed him. And David, he can stop right then and then. There, he can turn his head back. He can walk back into his palace rooms. But no, he takes a second look, and then a third lingering look, and his mind is racing. They say that. 90% of men confess to struggling with lust. 90%. And they also say that the other 10% are known to be liars. <laughs> I remember having a conversation with, uh, with two colleagues in church leadership, one male, one female, some years ago. And this conversation was shortly after a quite prominent church leader had been discovered having an affair with a member of his staff and it, it ended his ministry. He's still out of ministry now. This must have been 10 years ago. And my fe female colleague, exasperated, just said to us two men, uh, she said, why do men always do this? And 
forgive the crudeness, but this is the way she said it. She said, how difficult is it for you guys just to keep your zip up? And my male colleague said to her, without excusing or justifying or defending in any way this man's behaviour, he said, what women don't always know is that for the majority of men, sexual attraction is instant and full on. And it's not normally triggered by what you feel. It's triggered by what you see. You can't stop what you see, mostly. And so this fall from grace can happen to anyone, even someone with a flawless record to that point. And it's a conversation I've often reflected on since. I remember her face as she listened to this guy and saying this. It was a discovery for her. The thing about temptation, the thing about any temptation, and for you, the thing that gets you every time might be gossip, or it might be gambling, or overeating, or laziness, or anger, exploding with rage, or drinking, whatever it is, drinking too much, it could be anything. But the more time we allow what tempts us to get a hold on us, the more time we do that without fighting it, the more desensitized we become to the damage it does in our lives. It's a little bit like sliding down a hill, a quite steep hill. Sitting at the top of the hill, you start to fall. Now, it's much easier to stop sliding when you're near the top, isn't it? Than when you're picking up speed halfway down and starting to tumble. When you're losing control, you're going head over heels. It's hard to stop at that moment. David could have stopped sliding right at the start, the moment he saw her, but he lets the look linger and he starts to slip and then he inquires about her, starts to tumble a bit more. Then he realises her husband's not at home. Wow, now he's picking up speed, his mind is working away, he's falling, falling. And then he sends for her and now he's falling out of control. At which point David moves to step four and it's game over. All this time, as Bathsheba is with him in his palace, he's got this sinking feeling inside. His conscience is telling him, don't do it, don't do it. There's alarm bells going off in his head, but he just drowns them out. You know the reason why smoke alarms don't work? Main reason? People take the batteries out, that's why. And the reason people yield to temptation is because they switch off their sense of right and wrong. As Bathsheba is escorted by these officials to David's palace, he's removing the batteries to the smoke alarm of his conscience, one by one. I'm not going to listen to that. In chapter 12, verse 16, after being confronted with what he's done, David puts on sackcloth. Really uncomfortable, puts on sackcloth and he sits, not on his royal throne, but he sits down in the dust on the ground. It's proper repentance. And it's at this time, the Bible tells us that he writes Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice, creating me 
pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Kathy had a toothache recently and it affected the entire left side of her jaw. And the pain for her never subsided all day and all night. It was stopping her from sleeping. She took paracetamol and ibuprofen. I didn't help at all. She found some codeine 10 years out of date in an old box in her house. Uh, and that helped a bit, but not enough. And then she went to the doctor about this pain in the jaw and the doctor said, well, that's a job for a dentist. So she went to the dentist, the dentist took an x-ray, but the dentist said, doesn't show anything. And at this moment, the dentist's dental hygiene a hygienist pointed out that on the x-ray there was a crack in the tooth at which point i'm not making this up at which point the dentist put his glasses on and said oh yeah you're right <laughs> <laughs> the tooth had to be pulled out which required i'm told a lot of physical exertion you know foot, foot on the chair and sort of thing and because the root went very deep and i'm sure it wasn't pleasant to watch once the tooth was out, and all the blood was cleaned up off the wall, you know, and floors, <laughs> the pain was gone. Pain was over. David says this in Psalm 32 about this moment, about the time period between the adultery with Bathsheba, the, the, um, the murder of Uriah, and Nathan's confrontation. He said, his bones were wasting away. Through groaning all day long, he said, my strength was sapped. See, there was this heaviness upon him, the conviction of sin until he confessed. Then he said this, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He said, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. So having all your sins forgiven, knowing that there's a clean record with God, knowing that your guilt and shame are dealt with, it's taken care of. What a relief that is when you know it. But until that happens, sin normally brings us unhappiness. And for David... There was the greatest pain a parent can experience, the death of a child. And the pain of public disgrace for him. And the loss of authority, eventually becoming a laughing stock and a figure of fun. There was family disintegration that followed from this. And you can plot um, a graph of David's life. And it's very simple. It's an upward curve of continual progress until the night he meets Bathsheba. And it's all sadly downhill from that moment on for him. There are consequences to sin, even after repentance. But as I end, I want to say this. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how long it's gone on, you cannot sink so low that grace is unable to reach you anymore.
David was captivated by Bathsheba's beauty and it led to great ugliness really. But David would go on to marry Bathsheba and they would have other children together. The next one would be Solomon, which means peace. And he was thinking about this peace of God he had after getting all this dealt with, after all that turmoil. Solomon would eventually take the throne and continue David's royal line, which would lead all the way to Jesus. It's what Francine Rivers calls the lineage of grace. One of many um, shady and shameful stories of Jesus' family tree that leads, despite all the fallenness, despite all the disgrace, to the salvation of the world. And one day, the Lord Jesus, the greatest descendant of David and Bathsheba, would be described in these words. He had no beauty, like Bathsheba did, or majesty, like King David had, to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. And yet the beauty of the Lord, stunningly glorious, is displayed at that moment of greatest ugliness. So are you today, like David, someone who needs to turn back to the Lord? Or are you maybe, more like Bathsheba, someone who has been really badly wronged? As we come to communion in a minute, and Chris is going to lead us in this, let's remember that Jesus died not only for the wrongs that we have done, but also for all the wrongs done to us. Let's receive, brothers and sisters, grace for a new beginning and a cleansed heart as we break into it.